0: There's something new on Airs L.A. every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. April 24. On this date in history, in the year 1800, the Library of Congress is established. President John Adams approves legislation to appropriate $5,000 to purchase such books as may be necessary for the use of Congress, thus establishing the Library of Congress. The first books ordered from London arrived in 1801 and were stored in the U.S. Capitol, the library's first home. The first library catalog, dated April 1802, listed 964 volumes and nine maps. Twelve years later, the British Army invaded the city of Washington and burned the Capitol, including the then 3,000 volume Library of Congress. Former President Thomas Jefferson, who advocated the expansion of the library during his two terms in office, responded to the loss by selling his personal library, the largest and finest in the country, to Congress to recommence the library. The purchase of Jefferson's 6,487 volumes was approved in the next year, and a professional librarian, George Waterston, was hired to replace the house clerks in the administration of the library. In 1851, a second major fire at the library destroyed about two-thirds of its 55,000 volumes, including two-thirds of the Thomas Jefferson Library. Congress responded quickly and generously to the disaster, and within a few years, a majority of the lost books were replaced. After the Civil War, the collection was greatly expanded, and by the twentieth century, the Library of Congress had become the de facto National Library of the United States and one of the largest in the world. Today, the collection housed in three enormous buildings in Washington, contains more than 17 million books, as well as millions of maps, manuscripts, photographs, films, audio and video recordings, prints, drawings, and digital materials. April 25, on this date in history, in the year 1974, the NFL adopts overtime for regular season games. The NFL adopts a new overtime rule for regular season games to prevent Tie games. The rule change comes as part of a sweeping effort to improve the action and tempo of games. The league also moves goalposts from the front to the back of the end zone and limits contact defensive players can make with receivers. The new overtime rule mandated teams play an extra period if the score was tied at the end of regulation play. In overtime, the first team to score was declared the winner. If the score was still tied after the overtime, the game resulted in a tie. The NFL has since modified the overtime rule. The season before the overtime rule was adopted, the NFL had 7 ties in a regular season. Unlike some changes in NFL rules, the adoption of overtime was beneficial. From 1920 to 1973, The league had 256 ties. Since the 1974 rule change, ties have decreased significantly. Most fans dislike ties, so do players. It's not losing, but it's damn sure not winning, NFL receiver Stephen Diggs once said. April 26. On this date in history in the year 1977, Studio 54 opens in New York City. The crowd outside two hundred and fifty-fourth West Fifty-fourth Street in New York City on this day in nineteen twenty-seven would have been waiting for the curtain of a Puccini opera. On this day in nineteen fifty-seven or sixty-seven, they would have been waiting for a filming of an episode of Password or maybe Captain Kangaroo. On April twenty-sixth in nineteen seventy-seven, however, the crowd gathered outside that midtown address was waiting and hoping for a chance to enter what would soon become the global epicenter of the disco craze and the most famous nightclub in the world, Studio 54, which opened its doors for the very first time. The impresarios behind Studio 54 were Steve Rubel and Ian Schrager, college roommates at Syracuse University, who got into the nightclub business after their first venture. A chain of steak restaurants failed to flourish. But before taking Manhattan by storm and becoming famous for openly and shamelessly excluding all but the most chic, famous, or beautiful patrons from their establishment, Rubel and Schrager were running a far less pretentious operation called the Enchanted Garden in the Far Reaches of Queens the woman who deserves the lion's share of the credit for making 54 into the celebrity playground that it became was Carmen D'Alessio, a public relations entrepreneur in the fashion industry whose Rolodex included names like Bianca Jagger, Liza Minnelli, Andy Warhol, and Truman Capote. Her buzz-building turned the grand opening into a major item in the New York gossip columns, and her later efforts, like having Bianca Jagger pose atop a white horse at her 30th birthday party, stoked the public's fascination with Studio 54 even further. Not just the usual celebrity suspects, actors, models, musicians, and athletes, but also political figures like Margaret Trudeau, Jackie Onassis, and infamously White House Chief of Staff Hamilton Jordan came out to be seen during the club's brief heyday. From a musical standpoint, Studio 54 did not seek to break new ground, but rather to feed its patrons a familiar diet of dance hits. Artists like Grace Jones, Donna Summer, and Gloria Gaynor all made live appearances there, but Studio 54 belonged to the DJs, and to the free entertainment provided by the club's flamboyant staff and clientele. While disco reigned supreme on the pop charts, Studio 54 reigned supreme among discotheques, enjoying a golden era that lasted from its opening on this day in 1977 to its closing night party on February 4, 1980, a party called, appropriately enough, the end of modern-day Gomorrah. April 27. On this date in history, in the year 1994, South Africa holds its first multiracial elections. More than 22 million South Africans turn out to cast ballots in the country's first multiracial parliamentary elections. An overwhelming majority chose anti-apartheid leader Nelson Mandela to head a new coalition government that included his African National Congress Party former President F. W. de Klerk's National Party and Zulu leader Mongosutu Buthelezi in Qatar Freedom Party. In May, Mandela was inaugurated as President, becoming South Africa's first Black Head of State. In 1944, Mandela, a lawyer, joined the African National Congress, the ANC the oldest black political organization in South Africa, where he became a leader in Johannesburg Youth Wing of the ANC. In 1952, he became Deputy National President of the ANC, advocating non-violent resistance to apartheid, South Africa's institutionalized system of white supremacy and racial segregation. However, after the massacre of peaceful black demonstrators in Sharpeville in 1960, Mandela helped organize a parliamentary branch of the ANC to engage in guerrilla warfare against the white minority government. In 1961, he was arrested for treason, and although acquitted, he was arrested again in 1962 for illegally leaving the country. Convicted and sentenced to five years at Robben Island Prison, he was put on trial again in 1964 on charges of sabotage. In June 1964, he was convicted along with several other ANC leaders and sentenced to life in prison. Mandela spent the first 18 of his 27 years in jail at the brutal Robben Island prison. Confined to a small cell without a bed or plumbing, he was forced to do hard labor in a quarry. He would write and receive a letter once every six months, and once a year, he was allowed to meet with a visitor for 30 minutes. However, Mandela's resolve remained unbroken, and while remaining the symbolic leader of the anti-apartheid movement, he led a movement of civil disobedience at the prison that coerced South African officials into drastically improving conditions on Robben Island. He was later moved to another location where he lived under house arrest. In 1989, F. W. de Klerk became South Africa's president and set about dismantling apartheid de Klerk lifted the ban on the ANC, suspended executions, and in February 1990 ordered the release of Nelson Mandela. Mandela subsequently led the ANC and its negotiations with the minority government for an end to apartheid and the establishment of a multiracial government. In 1993, Mandela and de Klerk were jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. One year later, the ANC won an electoral majority in the country's first free elections, and Mandela was elected South Africa's president, a position he held until 1999. April 28 On this date in history, in the year 1967, Muhammad Ali refuses army induction. On April 28, 1967, boxing champion Muhammad Ali refuses to be inducted into the U.S. Army and is immediately stripped of his heavyweight title. Ali, a Muslim, cited religious reasons for his decision to forego military service. Born Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. in Louisville, Kentucky, on January 14, 1942, The future three-time world champ changed his name to Muhammad Ali in 1964 after converting to Islam. He scored a gold medal at the 1960 Olympic Games in Rome and made his professional boxing debut against Tooney Hunsaker on October 29, 1960, winning the bout in six rounds. On February 25, 1964, he defeated the heavily favored bruiser, Sonny Liston. In six rounds to become heavyweight champ, on April 28, 1967, with the United States at war in Vietnam, Ali refused to be inducted into the armed forces, saying, I ain't got no quarrel with those Viet Cong. On June 20, 1967, Ali was convicted of draft evasion, sentenced to five years in prison, fined $10,000, and banned from boxing for three years. He stayed out of prison as his case was appealed and returned to the ring on October 26, 1970, knocking out Jerry Quarry in Atlanta in the third round. On March 8, 1971, Ali fought Joe Frazier in the fight of the century and lost after 15 rounds, the first loss of his professional boxing career. On June twenty-eighth of that same year, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned his conviction for evading the draft. At a January 24, 1974 rematch at New York City's Madison Square Garden, Ali defeated Frazier by decision in 12 rounds. On October 30 of that same year, an underdog, Ali bested George Foreman and reclaimed his heavyweight champion belt at the hugely hyped Rumble in the Jungle in Kanasha Zaire with a knockout in the eighth round. On October 1, 1975, Ali met Joe Frazier for the third time at the Thrilla in Manila in the Philippines and defeated him in 14 rounds. On February 15, 1978, Ali lost the title to Leon Spinks in a 15-round split decision. However, seven months later, on September 15, Ali won it back. In June 1979, Ali announced he was retiring from boxing. He returned to the ring on October 2, 1980, and fought heavyweight champ Larry Holmes, who knocked him out in the 11th round. After losing to Trevor Burbick on December 11, 1981, Ali left the ring for the final time with a 56-5 record. He is the only fighter to be heavyweight champion three times. In 1984, it was revealed Ali had Parkinson's disease. He died on June 3, 2016. April 29. On this date in history, in the year 2004, The World War II Monument Opens in Washington, D.C. The World War II Memorial opens in Washington, D.C. to thousands of visitors, providing overdue recognition for the 16 million U.S. men and women who served in the war. The memorial is located on 7.4 acres of the former site of the Rainbow Pool at the National Mall between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. The Capitol Dome is seen to the east, the Arlington Cemetery is just across the Potomac River to the west. The granite and bronze monument features fountains between arches, symbolizing hostilities in Europe and the Far East. The arches are flanked by semicircles of pillars, each one for the states, territories, and the District of Columbia. Beyond the pool is a curved wall of four thousand gold stars one for every 100 American killed in the war. An announcement stone proclaims that the memorial honors those Americans who took up the struggle during the Second World War and made the sacrifices to perpetuate the gift of forefathers entrusted to us, a nation conceived in liberty and justice. Though the federal government donated $16 million to the memorial fund, It took more than $164 million in private donations to get it built. Former Kansas Senator Bob Dole, who was severely wounded in the war, and actor Tom Hanks were among its most vocal supporters. Only a fraction of the 16 million Americans who served in the war would ever see it. Four million World War II veterans were living at the time, with more than 1,100 dying every day, according to government records. The memorial was inspired by Roger Durbin of Berkey, Ohio, who served under General George S. Patton. At a fish fry near Toledo in February 1987, he asked U.S. Representative Marcy Kaptur why there was no memorial on the Mall to honor World War II veterans. Capter, a Democrat from Ohio, soon introduced legislation to build one, starting a process that would stumble along through 17 years of legislative, legal, and artistic entanglements. Durbin died of pancreatic cancer in 2000. The monument was formally dedicated on May 29, 2004 by President George W. Bush. April 30. On this date in history in the year 1997, The Big Ben clock stops at exactly 12.11 p.m. London's iconic Big Ben clock stops ticking. For 54 minutes, the most famous clock in the world failed to keep time. Completed in 1859, Big Ben has a long history of technical issues. The first bell cast for the tower cracked before it could be installed, and the second bell also developed a crack shortly after installation resulting in silence from the tower until 1862. The bell stopped ringing again during World War I, and the tower was not illuminated at night for the duration of World War II, when most of London was kept dark to make German bombing raids more difficult. Despite the heavy damage that the blitz inflicted on London, however, the clock stayed within a second and a half of GMT for the duration of the war. Since then, Both extreme heat and the buildup of snow have caused Big Ben's clock to stop ticking. In 1962, snow delayed the bells, causing the capital of Britain to ring in the new year ten minutes later than the rest of the country. The April 1997 stoppage occurred the day before that year's general election, but the malfunction was probably not a factor in the voting which Tony Blair's new labor won in a landslide over incumbent Prime Minister John Major. Big Ben's clock stopped again in May of 2005, on one of the hottest May days ever recorded in London. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for April 24 through April 30. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, We invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.